0: We're finishing a brief series, just sort of an in-between thing. Today, next Sunday, we start 1 John, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And so I hope that you'll be here because 1 John's a fantastic book. A Dutch theologian and professor named G.C. Berkauer made the statement, There can be no sound theology... Without a sound demonology. There can be no sound theology without a sound demonology. Meaning if we're serious about sound biblical doctrine. Then we must be serious about what scripture teaches about Satan and his demons. This is the end of a miniature series on Satan. And we're we're just scraping the surface of this subject. Up to this point we have studied some of Satan's names. Some of Satan's titles. And this morning we're addressing some of Satan's representations. The first representation, Satan is called the great dragon. Satan is the great dragon. Revelation 12 happens in the middle of the tribulation period. This is where Satan is removed from heaven. His visitation rights to heaven have been revoked. And so he is permanently expelled from heaven. This is in the future tribulation period notice revelation 12 verse 9 so the great dragon was cast out called the devil and satan dragons have had the traditional connotation of being evil except for the 2010 movie how to train your dragon then then not so much That Satan is depicted as a dragon reminds me of the popular fantasy role-playing game called Dungeons and Dragons. In the 1980s, Dungeons and Dragons was accused of promoting Satan and causing people to commit suicide. There could have been, in some cases, a connection between Satanism and that game. I'm unable to comment on that, though, as I haven't researched Dungeons & Dragons and other fantasy role-playing games. I do believe we should be extremely careful about such games, in part because those games can be extremely addictive. Some people feel that because in Genesis 3, Satan is described there as a serpent, a serpent is a snake, because he's described as a snake, snakes are therefore demonic. No, that's not true. In the garden, Satan did manifest himself in the form of a serpent. But before man's sin, the serpent existed in a different form than the serpent exists now after man's sin. Notice Genesis 3 verse 14. After the original sin, God cursed man and woman and cursed the serpent. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, that means because Satan, in the form of a serpent, had tempted man to commit sin, and he was successful in that. Because you have done that, this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. According to this verse, after man sin, God cursed the serpent and said from that moment on it would crawl on its underside, as it does now, in its present form. It seems that the original satanic serpent had legs, and then after this curse, God removed those legs so that snakes now just slither on the ground. Snakes though are not demonic, just disgusting. (laughs) I still hold to the Indiana Jones attitude, I hate snakes. Satanism is is becoming mainstream. Hardcore Satanism, meaning those that believe in an actual spirit entity, a being called Satan, and then in turn practice the black arts, the dark arts, including black magic and animal and human sacrifices, those groups want to remain secretive. But non-theistic, meaning atheistic, Satanism is more open and public and wants societal acceptance so-called non-theistic, atheistic Satanists believe Satan is just a metaphorical device used to represent the eternal rebellion against authority and societal norms. Some call this form of Satanism modern Satanism. There is a group called the Temple of Satan. Its headquarters opened in 2016 in Salem, Massachusetts. Ironically, Salem is the site of the infamous Salem witch witch trials that happened in 1692 and 1693. That organization's headquarters is housed in a Victorian former funeral home that is painted a dark charcoal. In 2019, the Temple of Satan received its internal revenue service tax-exempt status. Just as churches and parachurch ministries are tax-exempt, so is the Temple of Satan. The group's principal spokesperson is Lucen Greaves. This is Lucen. Um, That is not a satanic stare. He has a false eye. His left eye is not his own. The organization's symbol is a statue called Bathomet. Bathomet. This statue is a large goat-headed, winged, angel-winged occultic idol. And notice the satanic pentagram on its forehead. I should also mention that this is the satanic hand sign. And notice um, the fingers are arranged so as to resemble a goat head. This is the hand sign for Satan. I want us to watch a short clip, video clip, from a documentary on the Temple of Satan. This is actually the trailer to that documentary. Watch this. It's a beautiful day here at the State Capitol. Great day to be a Satanist. I believe it and I'm very excited about it. We're not what you think we are. Satanic Temple was an idea between a handful of people directly confronting authority. This makes life fun. State officials have put up a Ten Commandments monument on government property. Satanists are demanding equal rights. I am a tax-paying member of Arkansas, and I don't want that there. The Satanic Temple says you also need to put up our monument to Satanism. As a Satanist, I believe that confronting injustice is an expression of one's Satanic faith. You see Christian theocracy just creeping itself into our government and it is our duty to stand up to this. We want people to evaluate the United States being a Christian nation, it's not. We are supposed to be a nation that doesn't allow the government to dictate what is appropriate religious expression. It is out of not only Satanism, but patriotism that I am motivated. Satanism is looking out for the other, because we are the other. I am following a code of ethics, having fellowship with brethren. Why can't that be a religion? We do indeed invoke Satan. Hail Satan. Hail Satan. Hail Satan. Hail Satan. Satan. Interesting documentary. At the beginning of that trailer, did you notice, um, just after the Temple of Satan representative announced, "Great day to be a Satanist," that a protester from the audience shouted, "Go to hell." And this Satanist' response to that damning assignment was, "I believe it, and I'm excited about it." Let's see about that. It's interesting that these Satanists are deceived. By the actual being, these people claim doesn't exist. I should add the temple of Satan now has more than 700,000 registered members. Representation number two, Satan is called an angel of light. An angel of light. Second Corinthians 11, verse 14. The preceding verse comments on false teachers, prophets, apostles of the counterfeits, and no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. In Scripture, light and darkness are contrasted to represent good and evil. Light represents good, darkness represents evil. Um, Satan represents spiritual darkness, but if, but if he feels, it will help advance his cause If he feels it will enable him to deceive more people, then Satan transforms himself from an angel of darkness into an angel of light. Remember, there are two categories of angels. There's a fixed number of angels. God created them. Angels are just indestructible. Um, Angels don't die. Angels aren't born. They are just angels. The exact number God created. And of that number, there are two basic categories. Two-thirds of the angel population are faithful angels, meaning angels uh, that remain faithful to God. Those angels are considered angels of light. And then one-third of angels are called fallen angels, meaning fallen angels because those angels were expelled from heaven after Lucifer's initial rebellion against God and fallen angels are essentially demons. Fallen angels and demons are considered angels of darkness. According to this statement Satan transforms himself into what seems to be a faithful angel. He transforms himself into what on the surface seems to be an angel of light but he isn't. He's still full of darkness and he's pure evil. Just because on the surface something seems to come from God doesn't mean that something is from God. One of the best-selling books in the 90s was from Betty Eadie. That book was called Embrace by the Light. It was a New York Times number one bestseller. It was supposed to be a first-hand account of Edie's own near-death experience. The message of that book was that no one should be afraid to die because after death, there exists an incredible light full of unconditional love. And that light embraces everyone that dies, meaning that all people go to heaven and hell doesn't exist. It's interesting that Edie has refused to release medical records or submit collaborating evidence that document her actual death, but she still insists that during a hysterectomy in 1973, she died, and she claimed to be dead for as much as four hours. She said it was the result of a supposed hemorrhage that happened, she claimed, during a nurse's shift change. During that time, she said she met this light she identified as Jesus. I question that. I believe that light was probably Satan himself masquerading as Jesus. She relates how she felt herself getting weaker and weaker until she was no longer alive. She left her body and hovered over the hospital bed until three old monks appeared who explained that they had been her guardian angels during her life on earth. So her guardian angels were three old monks. I don't think so. Soon she found herself drawn through a dark tunnel at an incredible speed until she was embraced by the light of an unusual man. She said, quote, I saw a pinpoint of light in the distance. I was instinctively drawn to it. As I approached it, I noticed the figure of a man standing in it with that light radiating all around him. I felt his light blending into mine, literally. And I felt my light being drawn to his. And as our lights merged, I felt as if I had stepped into his countenance. And I felt an utter explosion of love. I went over to him and received his complete embrace, meaning he, she and this light hugged, and said over and over, I'm home, I'm home, I'm finally home. I felt his enormous spirit and knew that I had always been a part of him, that in reality I had never been away from him. There was no questioning who he was. I knew that he was my Savior and friend and God. He was Jesus Christ. On the surface, that account sounds almost biblical. But if we examine this book in more detail then we soon learn that Edie's ideas are a strange mixture of Mormonism and New Age philosophies. Edie was a Mormon before, ever before that near-death experience occurred, A Mormon publishing company in Utah actually published the original edition of that book, and it immediately became a bestseller in the LDS Church. The first edition contained a one-page insert entitled, quote, of special interest to the members of the Church of Latter-day Saints. And that insert contained the account of Edie's conversion to Mormonism and mentioned the desire she had to convert others to Mormonism. In that original edition she mentioned the Mormon doctrine of preexistence. We've mentioned that before. That doctrine of preexistence means that all humans, including all of us, once existed on another Mormon ruled planet in the universe and we existed there in a spirit form before being born on earth and receiving our bodies. Remember in part one of this series, we said that pre-existence was a basic Mormon doctrine. But she extrapolated from that teaching to go on and explain human evil. Listen carefully. Miss Edie said that millions of Jewish people that were tortured and murdered in the Nazi Holocaust, those people had actually chosen to be recipients of that situation before being born on earth. That means according to Ms. Edie, and what she said, the Holocaust casualties were not actual victims of Nazism, but were willful participants in the Holocaust. Their pre-existent spirits uh, chose to die like that after being born on earth. That's amazing. If that's true, then the Nazis shouldn't be condemned because the SS troops were just fulfilling the wishes of their subjects in putting them to death. That's craziness. In order to be more palatable to the non-Mormon public, parts of the first edition were changed. Um, And Ms. Edie started to describe herself as a non-denominational Christian. She is now 80. Uh, I'm not sure how she would label herself, but her books, because she had others she authored, contain definite non-Christian teaching. So I question her spiritual profession. The point is that not all people that claim Christianity are actual Christians. Satan lies. And the light we see sometimes might be from Satan masquerading as light in an attempt to deceive us. Representation number three Satan is called a roaring lion. A roaring lion. 1 Peter 5, verse 8. Be sober, be vigilant. Why? Because your adversary, adversary means enemy, the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Lions are interesting animals. Lions are called king of the jungle. Um, A male lion weighs between 350 to 550 pounds. Um, This verse mentions the roar of a lion. Lions are the loudest of all the cats. A male lion is a deep pitched roar. Uh, Some of us have heard that roar at different zoos. Um, And that roar can reach 114 decibels, which is a painful uh, decibel level to the ears. And a lion's roar can also be heard up to five miles away. People, I question, do female lions called lionesses roar? Yes, Female lionesses do roar and roar to protect their cubs from danger. Male lions roar, roar to protect their territory. Lions are very territorial. Um, male lions, um, female lions, do most of the hunting. I mean, female lions, they're the, they are the—they—they do most all stuff. Uh, male lions primarily protect the pride. The pride is a group of lions. Primarily protect the pride from other male lions and male lions impregnate. Pregnate female lions and produce lion cubs. But other than those functions, male lions basically lazy and sleep most of the time. (laughs) That's how it is. But male lions are strong, ferocious, and savage predators. No one in his right mind would want to face a determined male lion. It's interesting that in 1 Peter 5 and verse 8, we just read, Satan is compared to a roaring lion. And then in Revelation 5 and verse 5, Jesus is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Judah was one of the original 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, Remember, Israel's kings were prophesied to descend from Judah. That included David, David the king, and included David's ultimate descendant, the Messiah, who would be Jesus. So both Jesus and Satan, to a certain extent, have similarities to lions. Jesus is similar to a lion because he is the Messiah. Messiah means the anointed one, anointed to be king. He is the king. And remember, lions are considered king of the jungle. Satan is similar to a lion because he's a predator, wanting to devour other animals. That is where the similarities between Jesus, Satan, and lions End though. The first law in Campus Crusade's track, famous track, called Four Spiritual Law, Some of us have seen that or even passed that track out. The first law states God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. On a personal basis, I would qualify the wording from that first law. Um, I would change it some. But if that statement is true, God loves you, and has a wonderful plan for your life, then conversely, it is equally true that Satan hates you and wants to totally wreck the plan God has for you. One more time, 1 Peter 5, 8. Be sober. Sober means be serious and self-disciplined. Be vigilant. vigilant. Vigilant meaning be aware, be alert to danger, And the reason is because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. The Greek word translated here as adversary means a legal opponent in a lawsuit. Satan is depicted in Scripture as a prowling lion that is searching for a victim to devour, and that victim is us. Paul has compared the boldness and confidence of the lion as manifested through his roar to the aggressive confidence of Satan. In a spiritual sense, Satan is confident and aggressive in his determination to capture us. That's the reason Satan is a real and present danger to us, and we cannot afford to ignore that fact. This brings up a common question people are curious about it's been asked often, can a Christian be demon-possessed? Can demonic spirits actually inhabit a Christian and take control of him? Can a Christian be demonized? Well, the word demonized is the same as being demon-possessed. The answer to that question is no. No. A Christian cannot be demon-possessed. A Christian cannot be demonized. Listen to this logic. A Christian cannot be demon-possessed because demon possession implies ownership. And Satan cannot own a Christian. Possession implies ownership. And Satan cannot own a Christian. The reason Satan cannot own a Christian is because God owns the Christian. A Christian is God's possession Satan cannot own us because God owns us. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20, addressed to Christians at Corinth, Greece. Notice, for you were bought at a price. The price used to purchase us was the sacrificial death of Christ for our sin on the cross. For you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Our bodies are said to be God's possession. And Satan cannot possess what God already possesses. That means Christians cannot be demon-possessed. There are no instructions in Scripture to cast a demon out of a Christian. And that implies that no Christian has a demon that needs to be cast out. But And don't miss this. Christians cannot be demon-possessed. Christians can, though, be demon-oppressed. And the actual word oppression means troublesome or bothered and burdened with troubles. Demonic oppression means demonic harassment and demonic trouble. Demonic harassment and demonic trouble. One biblical case of demonic oppression, not possession, oppression, would be Saul. Saul was the first king of ancient Israel. Remember, ancient united Israel consisted of three successive kings before the nation divided into two kingdoms in 931 B.C. And those three successive kings were Saul, then David, and then David's son Solomon. Notice this account about Saul. 1 Samuel 16, starting at verse 14. But the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, And a distressing spirit, a demon, from the Lord troubled him. The Holy Spirit did not start inhabiting people's bodies on a permanent basis until the Jewish feast of Pentecost, after Jesus' ascension into heaven, until that feast of Pentecost mentioned and described in Acts chapter 2. And since then... Each Christian is inhabited by the Holy Spirit. It is important to understand, though, that before Pentecost, during the Old Testament age, the Holy Spirit could come and go in and out of people. He would come into someone to enable them to do something special. After that something special had been completed, He could leave them. There was no permanent Residence inside a person for the Holy Spirit. In Saul's case, the Holy Spirit was there to enable him to rule the covenant nation of Israel. But then, because of Saul's sin, notice according to verse 1, the Holy Spirit left him. The statement is made, but the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. The spirit left him, and a distressing spirit then started troubling him. Most Old Testament theologians believe that this distressing spirit was a demonic spirit that had a serious negative emotional effect on Saul. Now notice that this distressing demonic spirit is said to be from the Lord. Now that's interesting. God is sovereign, meaning God is the ultimate ruler. God is in absolute control. And Satan, since he is a created being, an inferior to God, cannot do anything without God's permission. God could, if God chose to, God could command a demon to terrorize someone. He could use one of Satan's imps to terrorize someone. But that's probably not what happened here. This just means that God permitted this evil spirit, this demon, to torment and harass Saul as part of his judgment on Saul. Notice verse 15. And Saul's servants said to him, Surely a distressing spirit from God is troubling you. So Saul's servants could see something is something's not right here. You know, Saul's upset. He's bothered. He's troubled. Please notice that this spirit was troubling him. And that's what demon oppression does. Understand that this demon was operating on the outside of Saul and not operating on the inside of Saul. So this was not a case of demon possession. It was a severe case of demonic oppression. Consider the different things Saul had done to invite this demonic trouble. He had started making rash judgments and idiotic decisions. He had dishonored God's prophets. He became a little autocratic tyrant. He invaded the office of the priesthood thinking he could function as a priest even though God had specifically forbidden that. He became a mass murderer and even massacred a whole group of priests. He became clinically insane. He was so out of control that he stripped himself naked and fell on the floor and humiliated himself. Ultimately, he ended up consulting a medium, which he was forbidden to do. He contacted contracted demons, and he ultimately committed suicide. He was an absolute and total mess. I think that insane asylums, mental hospitals, are probably filled with people some of whom have no legitimate psychological diagnosis. Now, a psychiatrist is always going to label someone with something. You know, they got to keep in business, so they got to find something they didn't want to put a tag or label on someone. But technically, these people are terrorized by demons. They're there because they have been troubled by demons. And some of the things in our secular culture today, such as ruthless dictators... Serial murderers, suicide terrorists, doctors that prescribe puberty blockers and perform sexual reassignment surgeries on small children are all related to demonic involvement. Because of his sin, Saul was experiencing God's judgment on himself in the form of severe bouts of depression, delusion, anger, and rage which were initiated and aggravated by the evil spirits assigned to him. Notice verse 16. The servants said, Let our master now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is a skillful player on the harp, and it shall be that he will play it with his hand when the distressing spirit from God is upon you, and you shall be well. So, 17, so Saul said to his servants, provide me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. God is into music, but if you'll notice, he's into good music. Uh, He wants a skillful player, a man who can play well, not just anybody. That applies to singing also, which is why most of us should never sing a solo. Verse 18, then one of the servants answered and said, Look, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite who was skillful in playing. He met that criteria. A mighty man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a handsome person. He misses me there. And the Lord is with him. Verse 19, Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who was with the sheep. Verse 20, And Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat, and sent them by his son David to Saul. Verse 21, So David came to Saul and stood before him, and he, Saul, notice, Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. That would soon change. Verse 22, Then Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Please let David stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. Verse 23, And so it was, whenever the spirit, meaning this distressing demonic spirit, from God was upon Saul, that David would take a harp and play it with his hand. Then Saul would become refreshed and well, and the distressing spirit or demon would depart from him David seemed to be able to provide a temporary solution to some of Saul's emotional symptoms proving that music can be extremely therapeutic even in a spiritual sense because as David played his harp that soothing music caused the demonic spirit to go away and Saul experienced some relief the point is that demonic oppression can now, just as it did then, in the case of Saul, result in troublesome issues and problems. On our short anniversary trip this past month, um, we decided, or I decided, and hope he said okay, um, we visited the haunted museum in Las Vegas. Some of you, probably most of you, have never heard of that, um, that mansion was built in 1938. Um, the owner uh, of the Haunted Museum, who is also the primary paranormal investigator uh, on the show Ghost Adventures, was was warned not to buy that museum. Apparently, there had been satanic rites and rituals conducted in the basement, and uh, people had died there. Uh, that's what he was told, and the research seemed to indicate and so when we came to the basement, we were warned about the basement and told, you don't have to go down there unless you want to. I was the first one down. And um, I'm curious. I have an inquisitive mind. So we, we visited this haunted museum because I was curious to see if I could, you know, do some research, find some information I could use in this sermon series or another series. And, and I found some things. We had to sign a waiver first stating that we wouldn't hold the museum responsible for injuries that could potentially occur during the two hour long tour as some people do get frightened and pass out and fall and break things. So we had to sign a waiver. The museum was strange and semi-creepy. There were some scary stories and warnings about different things in different rooms inside the museum and people were given the chance either you don't have to go in if you want to if not stay here because this could happen potentially and uh, I'm certain some of it was hype I mean that's how they sell tickets but there was no paranormal phenomena during our time there except near the end of the tour Hopi happened to notice she had a large scratch on her left forearm and it was bleeding. It was probably an inch and a half in length, and it was bleeding, and she was shocked. She said, look at this, because she didn't remember scraping against something. She didn't remember even being touched. She still has no idea how she got such a large scratch. One of the tour guides did tell us that being scratched was not an uncommon occurrence at the museum. I also know there have been 26 documented cases, meaning photographs, of people being scratched across the back, some of them severe scratches across the back during the tour of the supposed haunted old Washoe Club in Virginia City. Some of us have been there. Could those scratches be some form of benign demonic oppression just to make us aware of the fact that Satan's demons are present. I don't know. I guess it's possible. Some of the more problematic symptoms from demonic oppression are, are physical, sleeplessness, nightmares, severe anxiousness, self-mutilation, addictions, and different sicknesses and diseases. Suicide could also be, in some cases, attributed to demonic oppression. Spiritual symptoms, this apathetic spiritual attitude and even anger toward God. Paranormal phenomena, such as doors opening and shutting, hearing footsteps, and even voices. Some symptoms are financial, unusual financial pressure, especially if there is a rapid succession of unexpected financial disasters. And some symptoms could be emotional. Frequent outbursts of anger, emotional instability going from high highs to low lows and often. Hopelessness and abnormal fear and paranoia. Now, don't misunderstand. That doesn't mean that each negative thing we experience is the result of demonic oppression. Because most of the time, it probably isn't. Probably 99% of the time, it probably isn't. Most negative things that happen to us, we have created ourselves and are there as a direct result from our our sin, or as a result of our foolish decisions, or are there as sometimes from circumstances outside our control. Life happens. But Satan and his demons can also cause us some of the problems we just mentioned, and we need to be aware of that. There are certain things we can do that invite demonic oppression, and some of those things are, on the note sheet, past or present participation in occultic practices, such as Ouija boards, tarot cards, astrology, seances, necromancy, That's contacting dead spirits. And divination. According to Deuteronomy 18, verses 9 through 14, those are all definite prohibitions. It's interesting. If you go to the old Washoe Club uh, and take the tour, uh, someone will tell you that for $400, you and some of your friends can spend the entire night in that hotel, old hotel, that building, spend the entire night there. And uh, no one else is going to be there. You can spend the night in this supposed haunted building. And I guess some people do that, but from what I understand, nobody makes it through the night. Everybody comes running out at about 1 o'clock in the morning. But one of the prohibitions, the tour guide said, if you choose to do that, you cannot, you are not allowed to bring an Ouija board into this building. Even non Christians understand that Ouija boards are a point of contact for demons. Second, past or present participation in false religion is inviting demonic oppression. 1 Timothy 4, verse 1 states that false religions ultimately teach, quote, the doctrine of demons. Third is drug usage. Drugs can alter the state of someone's mind, and that can be an invitation to demonic influence. Fourth, occultic meditation techniques. This new age teaching that we should empty our minds and then repeat some continuous strange mantra can result in losing personal control of our faculties, and that is an open invitation to demonic, to demonic influence. And then fifth, curses from other people. Some people don't believe in this. This is not some old wives' fable. But curses and spells can be focused on someone and if not countered, can have a negative and sometimes dangerous effect. The reason I mention these things is because if we understand what can cause demonic oppression, then as a precaution, we can avoid those things. Now the solution to satanic oppression, satanic harassment, satanic trouble, the solution is to resist Satan. Resist Satan. And there's one verse in particular that should summarize our personal reaction to Satan. James 4 verse 7. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Notice the Bible never tells us to rebuke Satan. It tells us to resist Satan. Scripture never tells us to bind Satan. It tells us to resist Satan. Some in the charismatic movement teach that as Christians, we have the authority to bind Satan. I respect their opinion. I would disagree. I would argue that Jesus gave those original apostles the sole authoritative right to bind and loose things on earth. That's found in Matthew 16, verse 19. Jesus said there, And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. In a direct sense, Jesus made that statement to Simon Peter. And in an indirect sense, Jesus made that statement to those other apostles that were present at that moment. And then notice the statement made in the second half of verse 19. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Those words, bind and loose, were common Jewish words used in legal judicial cases. So bind and loose were words used in judicial proceedings. To bind something meant to announce that something was forbidden. To bind something meant that that something was restricted. It was inappropriate. It shouldn't be done. And then to loosen something meant to announce that that something was permitted. Someone was free to do that something. It's not that these apostles were assigned the privilege of changing God's mind. That's not possible. Those men didn't have the opportunity to change God's mind as if whatever those men decided on earth would be agreed to in heaven. No. It's not that those men made a decision and then announced to God that he needed to sign off on that decision. But if those apostles fulfilled the biblical criteria in deciding on matters... And this is true in church discipline, just after this passage. If those apostles fulfilled the biblical criteria for determining things, then those decisions will match what God had earlier decided in heaven. If those apostles bound something, meaning forbade something, prohibited something, then that decision acted as a match to what God had earlier decided in heaven. If those apostles loose something, meaning permitted something, freed something, then that decision agreed to is what God had earlier decided on in heaven. Listen to the Amplified Bible. I will give you the keys, keys mean authority, of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind, meaning forbid, declare to be improper and unlawful, whatever you bind on earth will have already been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose, meaning whatever you permit and declare lawful on earth, will have already been loosed in heaven. But people, this has nothing to do with binding Satan. I have heard Christians announce in a prayer, Satan, we bind you from this house. Satan, we bind you from this place question if we could actually bind satan and render satan impotent and ineffective then why don't we just go ahead and bind him from the entire earth because there's no location on this planet where he's not a problem no we don't do that because we can't do that we cannot actually bind satan that's god's job Satan is scheduled to be bound at some prophetic point. But notice who it is that binds him. Revelation 20, starting at verse 1. Then I saw, this is John the Apostle, then I saw an angel coming from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. Verse 2, he, this angel, laid hold of the dragon Again, the dragon is Satan, that serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. This happens just at the beginning, after the tribulation period has ended, at the beginning of the millennial period, so that the millennium is the ultimate utopia on earth. Uh, God binds Satan, has an angel chain him, and cast him into the bottomless pit. At the end of the millennial period, he'll be released for a brief time, and then he will be... Uh, soon after that uh, cast into Gehenna the final ultimate eternal hell but notice Satan is going to be bound in a great chain and cast into the bottomless pit and notice it is an angel a faithful angel that is assigned to bind him in chains not one of us Zechariah 3 verse 2 this is interesting and the Lord the Lord himself said to Satan the Lord rebuke you Satan Satan Jude verse 9. Yet Michael the archangel in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses dared not, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation. Meaning Michael dared not bring an accusation against Satan himself but instead said, notice, the Lord rebuke you. At that time even Michael the archangel who is at this moment the ultimate angel faithful angel wouldn't rebuke satan he said the lord should rebuke him now i understand the frustration we feel because most all that is happening around us that depresses us is from satan so someone someone could call satan names i have someone could in frustration scream at satan I have. Someone can do as Martin Luther would do. Um, Luther imagined Satan in the room. He would be so frustrated at his devices uh, that, in his anger, he would pick up his ink quill and throw it at his this imagined Satan. Well, it just made a huge mess in the room and uh, literally had no effect on Satan himself. Why? Because our job isn't to rebuke Satan. I don't care if you want to throw things at Satan, you imagine the room, that's fine, go ahead. You just have to repair whatever you broke, that's fine. But if you want to do that, fine. Our job, though, isn't to rebuke Satan. Our job is to resist Satan. And if we do resist him, then God said, verse 7, Satan would make himself scarce. He would flee from us. The actual word resist means to stand against, to oppose something, to oppose someone. And if we do resist, if we do stand against Satan, if we oppose Satan, then we can be confident and courageous in that resistance because of a statement found in 1 John 4 and verse 4. That verse reads, you are of God, little children, and have overcome them. Because, notice, he who is in you, that's us. And who is in us as a Christian? Colossians 1.27, Christ in you. Jesus Christ in an invisible spiritual sense is present inside us in the form of the Holy Spirit. So he who is in you, that's Christ, is greater than is mightier than, is more powerful than, he who is in the world, and who is in the world, Satan. People, that ought to be of some comfort to you. To know that greater is he who is inside us, he who inhabits us, God himself, in the form of Jesus and the Holy Spirit inside us, is greater than Satan who is around us. So the Jesus that is in us is greater than the Satan that is outside us. Question, if our reaction to Satan is to be resistance, then how do we resist Satan? How, how do we do that? Let me reduce, because I've got a, a time frame problem, let me reduce resisting Satan to its irreducible minimum. This is the bare essence of reduce resisting Satan. The secret to resisting Satan is found in the first half of this verse. James 4, verse 7. James said, therefore, submit to God. Resisting Satan starts at submitting ourselves to God. How do we resist Satan? We resist Satan through submitting ourselves to God in the particular situation where Satan is a threat. We resist him through submitting ourselves to God in the particular situation where Satan is perceived as a threat. Now, some of us that are older, remember the acronym WWJD, WWJD meaning what would Jesus do? And we were told to apply that in a practical sense to ourselves. That acronym was first popularized in the 1990s. It was printed on bracelets and t-shirts and mugs and bumper stickers and has even been listed as an entry in the Oxford Dictionary. That acronym, acronym, WWJD, though, is problematic to me. The question isn't what would Jesus do Because Jesus can do some things we cannot do. Jesus can walk on water, and we can't. I actually tried once. I was unsuccessful. The more appropriate question is found in the acronym WWJWMTD, meaning what does Jesus want me to do? What does Jesus want me to do in a given situation where Satan is posing a threat? Because Jesus doesn't expect us to do what we cannot do. So to resist Satan through submitting to God means doing what Jesus would want us to do in a particular situation. And doing that each time Satan presents a problem to us. I wanted to use the most benign example of this as possible. Something so small, some people might consider it silliness. But in the big scheme of things, it still matters. And the reason I wanted something small, because if we're faithful in the small things, then chances are we will continue being faithful in the bigger things. I went to the gym late one night recently and I went there to do legs. I went to do leg presses. I, I have knees that bother me doing squats, but for some reason I can still do leg presses and so I do. And uh, I'm still able, I'm not strong actually, but I'm still able to use an, an unusual number, the large 45-pound plates. Uh, the problem is, those big plates aren't in one location so it's a serious hassle finding all those big plates and then lugging them over to the leg press machine and using them and then after I'm finished the sets it's another hassle returning all those plates to where I found them and then re-racking them I mean it's, a, it's it, I get more of a workout just moving the plates around the gym than, than I do on the leg press. I didn't finish the workout until just before midnight. I, I got there late, and so I didn't finish until just before midnight. And literally, no one was in the gym. I was the only person in the gym, which is kind of a strange feeling. Like, is this my gym now? But I, it was weird. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, an idea hit me that I could, I could save myself all the time and effort and trouble of unloading those plates, I could just leave those plates, all of them on the leg press machine, and go home. No one was there. No one would see it. Understanding, though, that someone would come in the next morning and go ballistic, finding all those plates still on the machine, understanding that they would have to then unload all those plates and bring them back to where those plates belonged and I'm sure they would have been ticked but no one knew it would be me no one could know someone said character is what we would do if no one would ever find out character is what we would do if no one would ever find out and so I knew I was being tested no one would find out if I just said forget this and left That impulsive idea wasn't from God. It was from the deceiver himself. He wanted me to not do what I knew was the right thing to do. The good part is that probably lasted no more than a half a second. Because I'm working on my sermon, and I suddenly remembered the question, what would Jesus want me to do? (laughs) So I'm standing there under conviction and go, bummer. I can't get away with anything. (laughs) I got to do the right thing. So I took all the plates off, returned all the plates to where I had found them, re-racked them, took the solution in a bottle and a rag and wiped down and cleaned the leg press machine. I even turned off the overhead fan, which I didn't have to. In fact, on the way out, I said, okay, God, what else do you want me to do in here? (laughs) And then I left. And I left having an internal sense of satisfaction, understanding that I had just pleased God in something small. But I had pleased God, and it upset Satan and sent Satan down the road. And got a sermon illustration in the process. There's the ancient Christian fish symbol most people have seen called the ichthys. The ichthys. Notice it has a double line that forms the first letters of five different Greek words. Both the fish symbol and the acronym inside that symbol have had significant meaning to those earliest Christians and still have significant meaning for Christians now. The acronym inside that fish symbol consists of the first five letters of five Greek words, and together those words spell Jesus Christ, God's Son, the Savior. That's the gospel. Jesus Christ, God's Son, the Savior. So this was and still is a sacred Christian symbol. Now to put things in perspective, this past Tuesday... One of our elders, Tom Kalb, who's in the A.V. booth, sent me via a text a picture of a twisted and evil distortion of this symbol that he had just seen on a bumper sticker on someone's car just down the street from here. This is that bumper sticker. Notice the horns on the letter N. People, that is absolute sacrilege and blasphemous. But that's where we are as a culture. I'm grateful I'm on Team Jesus because in the end, we win. Amen? Amen? Let's bow our heads. Father, thank you that we are victorious through Christ in all things. Satan can harass us, he can oppress us, but he can't defeat us unless we let him. He is a defeated foe. And if we would stand strong in our submission to God and what God has said in his word and refuse to cave into temptation, then that resistance would force him to flee from us. And I pray that we'll do that, be determined to do that in the hours and days and weeks to come after, after this morning. God, I'm so grateful that we have salvation in Christ and Christ in us is so much greater and mightier than Satan is in the world system we live in the end times these are evil times and we know that and understand that and things will get worse before things ever get better that is a fact a biblical reality but God help us to remember we're on the winning team ultimately we will win and Satan will be permanently and utterly defeated. Thank you for that. And I thank you in the name of your mighty son, Jesus. Amen and amen.